Hi, welcome back to Occupy Interview. This is episode 26, uh, and this episode is Occupy Independent Votes. Our guest today is Chad Peace. Chad, say hey. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, really uh, looking forward to this show. Uh, we, I, I just shared a, an article with you uh, that came in from uh, Global Research. And they were talking about uh, the anti-war issue and how it's not being addressed. And their specific observation was its divide-and-conquer activity. Um, you're part of the uh, Independent Voter Network and part of open primaries, uh, open debates. We're hoping we can address some of these issues today about what you guys are trying to do to try to bring some issues back to the voting process. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background real quick? Uh, what What is uh, your director of operations for Independent Voter Network? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of background. I work um, with the Independent Voter Project, who publishes Independent Voter Network, which IVN.us, um, and they also uh, are the primary funders and the principal co-founders of endpartisanship.org. Now, IVN is a, is a news platform. It's open to anybody who meets certain etiquette guidelines, and, you know, we, we also have a <laughs> editorial standards as well, just in terms of, you know, journalistic standards. Um, but it's an open platform, meaning, you know, the name is Independent Voter Network, but we really define independent by a state of mind, not a party affiliation. So we try to make it clear that the network's open to anybody, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green. And really the purpose is just to elevate the level of civil discourse and talk about real issues that haven't, you know, maybe that haven't been compartmentalized by really the, the two-sided debate that we have in the, in the mainstream media. So our readership has grown quite a bit over the last couple of years, and we have a very, very diverse um, authorship. Um, you know, I think we're over, well over 200 contributors now. And really, it, the most interesting part for us is, we, you know, about every day, you know, we'll get somebody saying, well, you're just a, a bunch of undercover Republicans, or you're just a bunch of undercover Democrats, and you're just a bunch of anarchists. And it all depends on the one article they read, which is the whole point of our of our platform is that we want a place where people actually start talking to each other about issues that cross party lines. And it goes back to the, you know, the, the global research article you sent me. Um, IBN and end partisanship are not ideological or policy driven ventures. They're, you know, IBN is a platform and partisanship is a legal strategy where we're going to challenge the two party institutionalized, um, partisan election system. How it relates to the article you sent, it's our belief that a lot of issues, whether it's war or it's privacy or it's um, you know banking, whatever it is, if it doesn't contribute to the benefit of either of the two parties' campaign strategies, they get swept under the rug. And so what we believe is what you have to have is both a dialogue and an election system where representatives are accountable to more than just their primary base of voters. Because as long as you limit the dialogue and you limit the elections to this really small sliver of the electorate, I mean, 95% of elections are decided in the primary, but less than 8% of people actually vote in the primaries. So it doesn't matter how much, how popular an issue or how much um, an issue matters to people across the board. What matters to consultants, to campaigns, and ultimately to representatives, because they're accountable to the people who elect them, are the issues that drive that core basis of voters to the polls during the primary. So everything we're doing is trying to broaden the people that, representatives are ultimately accountable to. And what you have as a consequence is issues like anti-war, which you can find anti-war activists in the Libertarian Party who have found a meaningful avenue to participation through the Republican Party. You can find them as, you know, civil uh, Democrats who are have strong, you know, civil liberty principles. Um, 
But in terms of elections, it divides their influence because they, the representatives that are, are only accountable to some of them on the left side and some of them on the right side, and as long as they ignore the importance of that issue, it goes back to your point of your article. They divided what is collectively a much bigger movement than it appears to be by election results. We've, uh, there were a couple of statistics, and there will be a link to, to the page. There will also be a link to the uh, global research article. And a couple other things we talked about in the show, we'll, we should have links up. Uh, you had a figure saying confidence in Congress is about 10%, and uh, right. confidence in the regular media is about 40%. Um, these, are, these are issues that, because everything is being ignored and these issues aren't being addressed, you feel this is, is this what the, the voter turnout numbers look so low for and we talked about a I sent you a link to a history book uh, we've talked on this show several times about uh, Carol Quigley tragedy and hope a historian a great historian uh, he did a, a he basically documented the JP Morgan old man JP Morgan himself back about the turn of the uh, the century uh, 1890s, 1900, figured out if you buy off both sides of an election, you never lose. Uh, then there was another book that we've got here, a, a historian by the name of Charles Beard, uh, Economic Origins of Jeffersonian Democracy, that kind of gives the history of how the party system got started. Can you kind of touch base on that and how it applies to to the nonpartisanship issue? I think it's really crucial that people understand why there's parties in the first place. Right. Well, you know, a lot of your readers probably know that you know, George Washington, for example, you know, made several speeches, including his farewell speech, warning about the influence of parties into the system. You know, it, and the parties really arose and developed over the conversations about whether we should have a central banking system. Everyone's familiar with the, you know, the, uh, the Madison and the Hamilton debates. And really, you know, these factions started arising around different, albeit major issues. And ultimately, you know, we we resulted in, in uh, parties that became stronger and stronger by exerting influence on particular issues. But going back to the way you preface this conversation, why is voter turnout so low? I think, you know, if you go all the way back to when they arose just after the country was really founded, over the last couple hundred years, what turned into, you know, factions over issue advocacy have turned into factions that aren't necessarily, you know, the issues aren't the primary concern of the, of the party, but it's the institutionalizing themselves. So what these parties have done, especially, and it's been catalyzed over the last, you know, 100 years, is they've done, when they rose around issues, they've started institutionalizing themselves when the popular electorate isn't in line with the issues that the parties themselves want. So they've done that <clears throat> through the court systems. They've done it through legislation, for example, making ballot access laws for third parties ridiculous compared to what they are for Republicans and Democrats. They've gerrymandered districts. And it goes all the way to what you're talking about in terms of the mainstream media is that they've, you know, they're consultants and they're polling and everything they determine what issues everyone else is going to even talk about because the campaigns revolve around them. So what's happened is you have these parties that really arose to solve, um, you know, debates over important issues, but over the last couple hundred years, they've taken that and then rearranged election laws to revolve around the parties themselves, and so they're not even they're not even accountable to issues that go outside of the debate that those two parties want to have. So issues that might hurt both of the parties and in turn help a third party or an independent candidate run against them on an issue aren't even covered, and therefore that third party or independent candidate never even has a chance. Beard's book talks about uh, the basically where you left off when there was originally one party, no no divisions, uh, is the party of George Washington. 
Uh, but what Beard documents is it was actually the party of the money power. Um, they had their interests covered. Uh, kind of sounds like current events. Uh, but what they were trying to make sure that they got passed through was the first, the forerunner of the Fed, the first Bank of America, uh, and the origin of the Jeffersonian Party, according to Beard's book, and it's well documented was an effort to try to limit the power and to get rid of the first national bank. Uh, so you actually have the start of the party system, the two-party system, uh, as, as an effort to try to go ahead and get another voice, the people's voice. And voter turnout was extremely heavy in the Jeffersonian election. Uh, do you see any kind of a – is that kind of what you guys are trying to work towards, is to try to get issues – Back in and covered. Well, I think I think yeah, I think at the most basic level, yeah, we want we want representatives to one address real issues and two have an incentive to address real issues. And going to part of your point, um, you know, I think there's always going to be money in politics, and and money is always going to try to affect politics. But the situation we've created today, going back to the the statistics they're citing, where 95% of elections are decided in primaries and only 8% of the turnout actually turn out. The ability for money to affect those elections is magnified by every voter that doesn't have a meaningful vote. So every voter you disenfranchise from the meaningful vote process makes money th that much more influential in a system. If we had 10 times the amount of people voting in the primaries or even five times the amount of people voting, that would make the moneyed interest less important. And so our point is that what we need to start with is having an accountability structure where there's more, where representatives are incentivized to talk to more people, right? Um, so I think where we have it right now is that the parties have created a system where they only need to talk to themselves. And even when they're challenged within their own party, they'll go and change the rules. I mean, a lot of uh, your listeners are probably familiar with what happened to Ron Paul when he tried to utilize the Republicans' own rules and challenge the leadership. Well, they called themselves private organizations and said, well, fine, then we'll just change the rules so these people who want to talk about other issues don't have a voice in our private party. And that goes to the lawsuit we're working on, that if parties want to claim that they're private institutions and that on the day of their conventions and when they're doing elections, they can just go and change their rules on a, 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 all willy-nilly, well, then they shouldn't be using taxpayer public funds to fund those activities. And, and that's all in an effort to broaden the system to make sure that people who want to talk about other issues, who want to be involved in our political process, can actually have a meaningful vote. And so at the end of the day, what that goes goes to the first question you asked, or why, is Verna, why is voter turnout so low? It's our belief that voter turnout is low in part as a consequence of the two parties talking about issues and talking about them in a way that doesn't make the voter want to get engaged. Why would I go vote if it appears that my vote either way isn't really going to matter because I don't really agree with either either of these two parties who just seem to be yelling at each other. We've, uh, we're about 14 minutes into the show now. Uh, wanted to take about 15 minutes and talk about uh, talk about the Independent Voter Network a little more detail. You had a figure, and again, the link will be up. I, I find this to be... I've seen it before, and I wish you could kind of go into detail on it. Um, 30, only 35 of the 435 House seats that are up for this election coming up in November are in play, are competitive elections. Can you kind of explain that? Uh, a sure. lot of people have troubles with that concept. Absolutely. I think this is important, and this is one of the factors we talk about when we say how the Republicans and Democrats have institutionalized themselves as a party. Um, and what we mean by it, we're all familiar with watching the TV, and then on election night we see all these red and blue states, and then there's a few of them that are purple. And so when you have Wolf Blitzer or um, 
Sean Hannity, whoever it is on TV, they're talking about, okay, well, this is a safe Republican district and this is a safe Democrat district. Well, what does that really mean? It means that whoever wins the Republican primary in that district or whoever wins the Democratic primary in that district has already won the general election. So that means if you're in a Republican district and you're not a Republican, when did you ever have a meaningful vote in that election? When did your vote ever even matter, right? If you're a Democrat in a Democrat district where they say this is a Democrat and the Democrat's going to win, there's no competitive election here, that means if you're not a Democrat in that district, at no point in the election did your vote mean anything, right? So why would the Democrat who wins the primary there ever listen to you? Why would your vote ever matter? Why would your opinion ever matter, right? When we, that article refers to the current system where really, and on election day, there will be 35 of the 435 districts in the country that the news will even think is important on election day. And that means that voters outside of the majority party, only in those 35 districts, actually have a meaningful vote, right? And so... Our point as both as the IVN News Network and then in our legal strategy on npartisanship.org is that we don't believe that that is a way to conduct a proper representative government because if the representatives are really only, only elected as leaders, as representatives of a single party, are they really representatives of our constituency, right? And I don't think we should be amazed that the approval rating of Congress is only 10% and that most people think their representatives don't really represent them when we look at the fact that most elections are decided at a time when most people don't even get to vote. I've, uh, we've got about 13 minutes in this segment. Um, can you kind of touch on some of the details that that makes so few uh, of these of these districts actually in play? I mean, is it gerrymandering, which is basically you set up a set up the election district so that basically a party has pretty much control of it and knows in ahead of time that they've got control or that some of these these are basic political concepts, but a lot of people are kind of new to this. And and I gotta say I'm probably less than totally familiar with it. Can you can you kind of touch on what are the specifics? How are they doing this? Well, I think it's a com it's a, it really is a combination of multiple factors. One of them being the most mischievous, I guess if you want to put it in a negative term, is that, you know, Republic, uh, Republican and Democrat legislators, when they redraw the districts, they have a personal incentive to draw the district where they're going to face the least competition in, in the election. That means they have to raise less money. That means they have less chance that somebody's going to challenge them. And so they get together and they'll redraw the district so that, well, if we can take change the boundaries of this district to make it from 55% Republican to 60% Democrat or vice versa, right, well, then they're they can just push all the actual competition into one single primary and then there's no real challenge in the general election. So that's one way it occurs. The other way it occurs is just naturally. I mean, if you're if you live in San Francisco, whatever district you draw with other with whatever boundaries you draw in San Francisco, California, right? You're going to have a lot more Democrats than Republicans, no matter how much you gerrymander it otherwise, right? Now, lots of places in the South, you're going to have the complete opposite. Lots of places in Texas, you're going to have the opposite. Right? A lot of places in the Midwest, you're going to have the opposite. But the point is, you know, when you combine gerrymandering with cultural norms, right, you create a system where you put all the meaningful vote into one party's primary, right? And so what we ask people um, is to question in the first place, what should the purpose of a primary be, right? Right now, the purpose of the primary in 48 states, it was 50 states until a couple of, a couple of years ago, but in 48 states, the purpose of the primary is a private purpose, right? It's to elect a party leader. But with that private purpose, it's paid for by public taxpayer funds. 
So we ask people the question, why are the public taxpayers funding an election scheme where the purpose of that scheme is to elect the leader of a party and not to elect the best representative for all the people? About 10 minutes left in this section, and this brings us back to what IVN is basically, as I understand it, trying to do, trying to get some issues back out there so that mm -hmm. the straight ticket isn't going to do it. Because really there aren't that many straight ticket votes anymore either. Uh, there's a huge amount of people that declare themselves as independents nowadays. Can you address that, uh, please? Absolutely. Almost, oh, it's in the mid-40s now, the last poll they did, the mid-40s of voters consider themselves independent voters. And you can take states like New Jersey. Here's a, here's a fact that to think about in terms of, you know, how, how representative and how democratic is our, is our actual process. New Jersey, 47% of voters are unaffiliated voters. That means they refuse to declare a party. This is despite the fact that the, if you want to vote in the Republican primary, you want to vote in the Democrat primary, the parties require you to register with their party. So despite a requirement that in order for you to participate in the primary, you have to join them, 47% of them have still said, I would rather not vote than join either one of you, right? And so, you know, our point, you know, IVN is really just a platform, and we don't take positions on a particular remedy, a particular system that would be better. We don't take policy positions. We, we want our contributors and authors, people like yourself, to utilize it as a platform to communicate your own positions. How it relates to the election laws is that, I mean, there's lots of groups all around the country um, that are advocating for different style systems. I, I work for the Independent Voter Project. They authored California's top two nonpartisan primary, which has gotten some flack from, you know, people in the, some people in the third party movement, um, which I think a lot of them are starting to really understand how third parties can use it as a benefit. But my point is we don't believe that that's the only end-all, be-all system, right? There's approval voting. There's a combination of top two and approval voting that they're trying to do in Oregon. Um, there's efforts to do instant runoff voting. There's instant. There's efforts to do proportional representation. Our point is, why aren't we talking about what's most fundamental to our representative system, right? What's most fundamental to any representative system, and then has a consequence on the issues that you talk about in the, you know, in the depth of our dialogue, is the way we elect our representatives in the first place. And what we believe is that we should challenge the current system, which disenfranchises a vast majority of voters, and then we can have a debate about, well, what's the best system to put in its place? Because it's not like there aren't better systems. There's all kinds of very good discussions going on amongst the small community that actually thinks about election law on a daily basis. And I wouldn't recommend anybody spend, spend every day thinking about election law, but if we can bring this issue to the, a broad, to the attention of a broader group of people who have really been disenfranchised from the process, well, maybe we can start having a dialogue in the, you know, in the, a broader dialogue amongst us all about, okay, how would we structure a better election system? And, ask the question, well, why does the current system disenfranchise so many people? We've got about six minutes left in this segment, and then we're going to go ahead and hopefully you can uh, you can talk about the open primaries. I saw the uh, uh, some of what California has been trying to do. I find it fascinating. Uh, but there was an article in IVN, uh, and, and I just tweeted it. It's repeating on the OASN uh, page right now where they were talking about they've taken the concept of voter fraud uh, and kind of bent that. We've, we've had Bev Harris as a guest on the show before and hope to get her back again because she's doing some great things with black box voting. Um, the voter fraud is usually conceived uh, because of a pretty good propaganda effort as uh, as people who are actually 
going in and we need better voter ID. And uh, the, the figure was there's only like 10 people that have actually been convicted of using a fake ID. To, can, can you kind of go into that? It's, it's another well, one of these issues that's really, really important here. Well, I'd like to take it on into the context of what you addressed in the first place, right? Why aren't we talking about real issues? Um, the voter ID issue is a great example of how the Republicans and Democrats have defined the debate, right? They've pitted two sides, the superficial debate between two sides over um, voter ID, right? And one side says, well, if we have voter ID, you're going infran- you're going to disenfranchise a bunch of voters. Okay, maybe there's a, there's some truth to that. Okay? The other side says, no, we have to have voter ID because there's so much fraud. Even assume there's truth to that, right? The numbers that they're talking about are relatively small compared to the issue that we were just talking about. What about the 47% of people in New Jersey who don't have any chance to vote, not because they didn't have an ID or did have an ID, they got, they got denied the right to participate in their own democracy by two parties who use their money to run their elections for one simple reason, because they exercise their First Amendment right not to associate with those parties and thereby got denied their voting rights altogether. So we're sitting here with two parties having a superficial battle over 0.01% of the, of the electorate, right? When there's an issue that affects almost half of the entire country not having a meaningful vote. Black so, voting has, has, has really brought up uh, the potential, and it was also mentioned in the IVN article, that the real issue here is what you can do with vote flipping, um, that's the voter fraud we should be looking at, not the real ID issue. Uh, and, and I agreed with that article 100%. Mm-hmm. Basically, we've, we'll have a link up with, uh, uh, there's been a lot of buzz on the Internet about, uh, basically, there's been almost admitted that Ron Paul had enough vote fraud, real vote fraud, to, to change the outcome of the election. Um, this isn't being debated at all that I can see. No, it, it, it's it's not, and that goes that goes. I think that we're talking about similar points, right? Is that Ron Paul was part of it? There's a vote fraud, but really a part of it was the they the party just decided to change their rules whenever they felt like he was going he was going to succeed, right? So. There's really two components of it. There's one is, okay, is there voter fraud, actual fraud occurring, right? And then is it two, do these private organizations, these private parties who have have very adamantly asserted that their private nature, are they allowed to just go and change rules when they whenever they feel like it? What's not being debated is that the Democrats don't even talk about that, right? So this is something that occurred within the Republican parties, but if the Democrats really believed in democracy, why wouldn't they be bringing this issue up themselves? It's because they don't want to bring it up because it would be disadvantageous for the Democrats to go and bring up an issue that would then highlight their own issues with being a private party while simultaneously utilizing our public election system and our public tax dollars. We've got, uh, uh, we're coming up on the, we need to go ahead and move to the next 15-minute segment, and that was the open primaries. Um, can you can you tell us that the California system was fascinating, and, and my background is I am a Democrat. When all is said and done, the reason I'm supporting the uh what you guys are doing is because there's so little being discussed and so little difference between the Democrat and the Republican Party right now because of the manipulations, that the only way to fix my own Democratic Party is to try to get things open back up and reboot the system. The open primary system looks to me like you guys are on to something for 
how do we get around this problem? And and can you go ahead and give us a, a you can give us a much clearer picture than I've got. I, I, but I did really find it interesting. Absolutely. And the one thing we 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 try to make clear too is that when we talk about we're you know anti-Republican Democrat institutionalization, that doesn't mean we're anti-party. And in fact. We believe what we do is we create stronger candidates, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, independents, or whatever they are. Um, in terms of, okay, is the Democrat Party responsive or the Republican Party responsive? What the important point is that in California, what we've done and it was modeled after Washington is, you know, before I was talking about how the nature of most primaries are a private nature. The purpose is to elect a party nominee. What California and Washington have done have changed the purpose of the primary, and they've made it a nonpartisan purpose or a public purpose. And so all candidates and all voters participate on one single ballot, right? And the top two winners go on to the general election regardless of their party. The system has nothing to do with candidates. It has nothing to do with parties. It, all it has to do with is individual voters, that every individual voter ought to have an equal, meaningful vote in any of the, the public election process. So as a consequence, you get a system where the purpose isn't to elect the best person to represent a group of people or a party, but a, a person, regardless of their own party affiliation, who can better represent everybody. So if you take it to an example, right, is that you can Google this, this article that was in the Boston Globe about a, about a race between a guy named Peter Stark and Eric Swalwell in California. Peter Stark had been a Democrat in the Congress for 22 years. He was known to be a pretty bitter partisan, divisive type figure. For 22 years, he'd never faced a real challenge in the election because all he did was he won his Democrat primary and then there was no real general election and he never really faced any competition. So he just stayed in the office year after year. California, under this new system, a guy by the name of Eric Swalwell challenged Peter Stark and he is also a Democrat, but he's a very different kind of Democrat. What Eric Swalwell did from day one, he didn't campaign just the Democrats. He walked to Republican doors. He met with the Libertarian Party. He met with the Green. He met with everybody he could and said, I'm, you know, I'm the guy who's basically going to challenge Peter Stark. I'm going to be the guy that has the best chance to beat him. Here's why I'm a better Democrat for you, even though you are not Democrats, right? So what the playing field did was it changed the dynamic. Now, in that election, Peter Stark came in first in the primary, and Eric Swalwell came in second. But in the general election, and this is a quote from Peter Stark from the Boston Globe article, he said, I couldn't believe it. I had the endorsement of the Obama administration, the Demo National Democratic Party, the California Democratic Party, and every union supporting the Democrats, every major organization, and he still won. And, they asked, and, the, and in the Boston Globe article, Eric Swalwell responded. They asked Eric Swalwell, well, how did you win? He said, it's really easy. I went and I talked to everybody else. So Stark may have won more of the Democrat votes, but, but Swalwell won overwhelmingly the votes of Republicans and, and uh, Libertarians and Greens and Independents because he was actually forced to talk to them. So despite the fact that there were only two Democrats on the general election ballot, I would argue that those voters in the district who were not Democrats for the very first time in California's history actually made a difference in the general election vote and had influence over the person representing them. There's about 10 minutes left in this segment on the open primary system. Uh, what, what was the mechanism in that election? Did the Republicans basically not run anybody? Because I still, when all is said and done, there is an advantage to the two-party system. 
and and that is if you've got more than two parties, you're never going to get a majority of of votes for I, I can't say never, but the odds of you're getting a majority uh, is not good. If you've got ten different candidates, you're going to have a minority candidate. Um, how did the what was the mechanism in the general election? Uh, how did the did the Republicans field anybody or can you tell us a little bit more about how it worked then? Sure. The way California and Washington is, is different than your standard system, it goes back to the purpose, is that you can only make the general election ballot by becoming in the top two of the primary, right? So the Republicans ran a candidate in the primary election, but this was a very overwhelmingly Democratic district, right? So the top two candidates were Peter Stark and Eric Swalwell, both Democrats. So there were only those two candidates on the general election ballot, right? The Republicans couldn't field anybody because they didn't get enough votes in the primary to make the general election ballot. So what that did is that top two system forced the, forced the election to be about those two candidates, right, which reduces the, spo- the vote splitting concerns that, that come up when you, when you have a bunch of candidates, right? So what it did was it it forced the electorate, you know, everybody got an equal, meaningful chance to participate in the primary. Come the general election, now the candidates, although they're both Democrats, are forced to distinguish themselves, right? And so what part of this does is it, is it, it asks voters to look at candidates for who they are and not for who, what party they're from. Because... It's very obvious once the candidates looked between Peter Stark and Eric Swalwell, Eric Swalwell is a much different type of Democrat than Peter Stark. And as most Republican listeners know, there are very different types of Republicans, right? And so part of what we ask on IVN and what we ask in the endpartisanship.org and what we're doing with, with changing electoral laws is to create a system that's not based on viewing candidates and voters as, oh, that's another Democrat or that's another Republican, but let's start talking to each other as individuals. Let's talk about the substance of what a representative represents, right? What are the individual issues he has? What does he bring to the table or she bring to the table, right? Not this superficial, I'm a Republican, and therefore I believe these 10 talking points that the Republicans passed around today and said that I need to reiterate everywhere I go on TV, or I'm a Democrat, and we got our email this morning of these 12 things we're supposed to say everywhere we go, and therefore I'm just going to keep repeating these 12 points. If we create a process that forces candidates to act like individuals, then we'll create a dialogue where we can talk about things on an individual level and not within the confines of a superficial two-party debate. About seven minutes left in this open primary segment. Uh, what was the mechanism then? <laughs> now we get to the nitty-gritty. How <laughs> did he get enough money? <laughs> and, and the money is the issue here because people who are hitting the checkoff box that says they want money contributed, uh, that goes to either the Republicans or the Democrats, I assume, uh, how did how did the two Democrats, how did the money factor get canceled out if you had the money pouring in from organized labor leadership, not necessarily grassroots, uh, from DNC leadership, definitely not <laughs> grassroots. Um, how was the money factor canceled out? Well, I, I don't think you're ever going to completely cancel out the money factor. I, I think it's it's almost futile to try to think that oh, we'll get money out of politics completely. I think there's things we can do to mitigate the effect of money in politics, and there are laws that we should have relating to the finance of campaigns. But the most important thing is is Eric Swalwell was far outraged by Peter Stark. And in fact, Peter Stark has vowed to, he's not going to run again, but he has vowed to spend something like raise $30 million just to unseat um, Eric Swalwell. Don't, don't quote me on that figure, but I know it's something he vowed to spend a lot of, help the opponent of Eric Swalwell 
um, by raising a ton of money for him. Swalwell was able to win. Not we, He had a fraction of the money of Peter Stark, but he was able to win simply because he went and talked to other voters because the system made other voters matter. If you go back to prior to the new system, right, you have a Democrat primary and a Republican primary. You have something like in California, 20% turnout, right? So if you take if you take a district, right, and you have 20% showing up in the primary, well, if you had 100 voters in that district, now only 20 are voting. Even If it's a 60% Democrat district, right, 12 of them vote in the Democrat primary and 8 of them vote in the Republican primary. Well, to win the Democrat primary, you only had to win seven votes, even if there were only two running, right? So under that old system, seven voters de facto determine who's going to win so that they can represent the rest of the 100 voters, right? The new system says everybody's going to participate in the same election, regardless of their party affiliation. So the top two in the primary, regardless of their party, go on to the, to the general election. And now the general election actually matters, right? So now that you have a general election that actually matters, the Republican voices, despite there being two Democrats on the ballot, and there's districts where it was the opposite direction, the Republicans, the Independents, the Libertarians, the Greens, they actually had a meaningful vote in the general election because they were going to determine whether or not, whether they were going to vote for the hardcore Democrat with all the party support and the big money behind him, or whether they were going to support this quote-unquote insurgent young Democrat who's kind of, who is much more of an individualistic, you know, civil libertarian Democrat who went out and talked to Republicans and talked to Libertarians. And so Eric Swallow's response in the Boston Globe article said it all. He said, they said, well, how did you beat him? That's amazing. He said, well, I talked to everybody else. That's how I beat him. <laughs> and the, so, the conventional wisdom is you can't beat the money. You have to, you have to raise money. Votes are secondary. Are, this system really did work around and take it back to the vote is more important than the amount of money. Uh, this is something that, again, I can't begin to tell. Politics is 1974, and they've had it drummed into our heads forever that if you don't have the money, you're not going to win. Uh, this system actually gets around that and brings it back to what are you saying? Well, well, absolutely. I think, like I said, I think there's there's no stopping money will always have an influence. But one of the best ways to mitigate the influence of money and the way to overcome money in politics is to create an atmosphere where everybody's vote matters. Because when you consolidate the amount of vote that matters, the impact of that money is magnified equally. Sweet. Uh, that That's a revolution in politics. Uh, I'm a fossil. I'm 56 years old. But that's something that, uh, again, the conventional wisdom is that can't be done. So evidently there's a system there where did get done, um, and, and hopefully you'll shoot me the link to this so we can put this with the uh, the article too, the Boston Globe article, where it's talking about the mechanics, because if this system goes more than just in California, and I, I assume that's what you're trying to do, uh, you're re-engineering how do you get elected in the 21st century, and and we can't really emphasize that enough. You're talking about a revolution in election strategy here. Absolutely. Um, that's, what, that's what we hope to accomplish is that, you know, unfortunately, we don't think it should be revolutionary that everybody has an, a meaningful vote in the process. But I think in terms of the way elections are conducted and the reality of today, that's just the way that it's been. Well, when only 35 out of 435 seats are even competitive, uh, obviously the status quo needs to be changed somehow since the whole purpose for the House of Representatives being up every two years is so that you can have some kind of control about how your tax money is being spent. Right. Um, that, uh, this is pretty phenomenal news. I really didn't know there was a replacement system 
actually off the shelf, ready to go here. Uh, so w- if you can shoot us more links on this, this is really important. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing. Are, have you guys, any of your guys, been putting together the system for the new 21st century campaign manager? Um, you've changed everything here. Uh, you know, we've been we've been we've been working on some things, and especially messaging and strategies. And and the, you know, you know, I wouldn't say we have any perfect solution, or that we're you know we're experts on absolutely what's going to be the best way to conduct elections under a new system. But what, what I can say is that the current system rewards division. It rewards a divide and conquer strategy and that that means more negative campaigns, it means more animosity. We believe if you bring more voters into the process it encourages a more civil campaigns, more substantive debate and that as a result we'll have a more positive atmosphere which would uh, to talk about all of the issues that are important to us. And again issues platform actually would matter again because uh, once again platform what you're actually saying has been relegated to almost immaterial as as far as the actual nuts and bolts of getting an election won uh, over the last 20-30 years Uh, and and that's what's gotten us into this mess. Thomas Jefferson obviously would agree uh, the, the money power was represented under that old system and the revolution that he kicked loose with Jeffersonian democracy, they actually kicked out their version of the Fed, the forerunner of today's Fed, uh, which would be a major sea change. Uh, So it's really fascinating to hear some good news about there's a system that's not just a theoretical system, but it's actually worked. can't begin yeah, they, to tell you how how good a news that is. <laughs> uh, well, they're, they've been. They, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, please go ahead. I, oh, I say. Well, yeah, the systems have just been started to be enacted in in a few states, and you know they're not the only systems. There's other alternatives that people have suggested, but but it is clear that there is a system that's been implemented. It works. Uh, California, despite. Um, Having more, you know, having a supermajority of Democrats now in the legislature, they've actually said it's one of the most moderate legislatures it's had in a long time because the type of Democrat that's elected under the new system is is different. Um, and so there's been accolades even from the Republican side of the aisle that it's a better functioning system. And so I think we need a lot of we need to have some more experience with the current systems. We need to try other systems. But um, the positive note of all of this is that, yeah, there are solutions. We may not have the perfect one yet, but it's, they're much better than what we have now and that there's really a reason to be optimistic about, you know, the potential for us really being the, you know, the envy of the world that we once were. We, you know, people used to envy our government. I'm not sure they do that so much anymore, but I think we can get no, back to that place. I get the impression that that from people I've talked to who aren't Americans, uh, they're pretty disappointed in us. Um, my, my only defense that I have told them when I hear that disappointment is, well, we're kind of doing the best we can, but it, it really is great to hear that there's some progress being made on how you bring that back. This is a first in a generation or maybe two generations. We've only got uh, about... Uh, 11 minutes left, and if we're talking about a system that minimizes the impact of just money, which the money power is going to be very disappointed to hear you guys have finally figured out a way around that, um, we've just got a few minutes left. I know you're involved with the open debates. Um, Occupy America is one of the supporters of the open debates 2016. Uh, can you talk a little bit about open debates and you guys? What are you doing with open debates? Um, yeah, I've uh, I've been working with Zach Carter. You know, he's really the driving force, the guy organizing um, all the open debate stuff, and we're happy to lend our support. 
Um, I think the open debates is something that's extremely critical in all of this, just as much as the electoral laws themselves don't, re, don't allow everyday voters and regular people to have a meaningful vote in the process. I think in terms of the current debate, you know, most people don't realize that the Commission on Presidential Debates is a very partisan private organization. It's run by Republican and Democrat leadership who don't have an interest in candidates outside the party structure and even within the party structure who they don't necessarily agree with. So as a consequence, they structure the debates, they just structure the questions, and they structure the participants within the confines of candidates that they find acceptable to present to the people. Now, I think in the, you know, the what's arguably still the most influential country in the world that when we go to elect our leader, we ought to have a platform where we can actually hear all of the credible candidates talking about the breadth of issues that are important to us as that very powerful country that we are. I don't know how we can go around the world saying that we're promoting democracy when we aren't willing to have a debate that represents the very democratic principles that we pretend to be promoting. Well, I don't want to use the word pretend. I think a lot of us, a lot of even advocates of our strong foreign policy really believe we're bringing democracy to the world. But I'm just saying, if you believe that, then why don't we look at the institutions here at home that restrict or reduce the democratic principles here at home? Occupy America became involved with this issue during the last last election cycle uh, when a candidate who was on the ballot, which is no easy feat, uh, in almost every state of the union, was arrested uh, trying just to have a voice in the debates. Um, Do you see that the open debates is going to be somehow, is that going to help? Do you you see progress there too if if we're trying to bring negate the power of the money and increase the power of what's being said and what candidate, what a candidate is saying and what they stand for. In the last couple of minutes, how, what do you see for the future? What do you see for 2016? I, I, you know, I'm positive. Um, I think, you know, even a lot of us, I was, I was pretty pessimistic about things several years ago when I really got back into politics and, you know, you see, we tend to get entrapped in, in, in our, our view of things where it's like, oh, my gosh, they're, you know, I don't agree with this thing that they're doing. This is hopeless. You know, there's all this corruption going on, and it's easy to get, you know, just stuck in a pessimistic atmosphere. But I think there's lots of positive things going on, because if you look at guys like Zach Carter and what he's doing with open debate, I think... You know, he worked on the the debates hosted by Larry King last election, and that's you know that's a big giant step. I think he's going to take a huge step with the open debates this year. You have independent media going on and getting bigger and bigger, using the tools available, um, you know, the technology available that are growing, and more people are listening to them, and people are having substantive debates. Um, you know, we have the stuff. You know, I like to think the stuff we're doing with electoral reform contributes to all these steps going on, and really all these steps are leading to the same place. It's a place where we all just want a system that's better, that's more responsive. And whereas even 30 years ago, the hurdle might have been just impossible to overcome, the tools we have available today, from the Internet to the technology to the ability for you know us to be having this conversation right now and for you to have an outlet to distribute it on your end and me to have an outlet on this end that we could have never had 30 years ago is a real reason for optimism now i you know i've been told by a lot of people who are much more experienced in politics than me that politics always lags you know 20 years or so behind society And if we look at the advancement that we've made in society with respect to the technology and our ability to accomplish things and do things over the last, you know, just 10 years, when that catches up with our political process, I think we have a lot of things to be positive about. 
it, it's uh, it's I, this has been a very very optimistic show, and and we were we're always looking for one of the main tools in the in opposition's toolbox in the money powers toolbox is uh, learned helplessness that that people have been taught through conditioned response that it's hopeless give up resistance is futile um, it sounds to me like what you're saying is hey there are there are there are success stories here uh, we've we've got uh, about five minutes left um, do you see any other success stories? What, what in the last couple of minutes? What do we need to be thinking about at Occupy America? Well, I, I think whether you're in Occupy America or in any a lot of other groups, is that the the, the biggest thing we should be thinking about personally, and you know, is, is looking at other groups, people who disagree with us, not as hurdles or enemies, is thinking about okay, what's the opportunity for us to work together? Right. You know, for example, you know, the if you just watched the mainstream, you know, the, the general news stations, right, you would think that, you know, the, the Tea Party is this crazy right group and that occupies this crazy left group. And that's kind of how they branded everybody. Well, those in the Occupy and especially those in the original Tea Party would know that there's a lot of common ground there. There's a lot of common sentiment. There may be differences among some of the solutions, but a lot of the things that bring that type of excitement about doing something about the system is really common, right? And so if we look at each other and say, okay, what's the commonalities above us and what what are the general sentiments that we can work together on, we can change things a lot faster then if we say, okay, well, I'm going to stand in my corner and everybody who doesn't agree with me on everything, well, screw them, they're our enemy. Well, you're never going to accomplish anything. So I guess the number one thing I think we can do is start viewing everybody as from the premise that there's no way I'm possibly ever going to agree with anybody on everything, right? If if people did, there'd be a lot more successful marriages. We'd have a lot, <laughs> you know, there'd never be fights among friends. That's just not the nature of who we are. So if we stop u- using as an excuse differences to not associate with each other and we start looking at each other, the reasons to associate, and then I think we're going to catalyze our efforts to really have positive, meaningful change. Are we, are, are we still here? <laughs> I'm still here. Sorry about that. I was muted out. Uh, we uh, <laughs> you muted yourself, huh? <laughs> I, I, I have. I, I was just struck speechless, which doesn't happen all that often. Anybody in the audience can tell you. Well, he's always got something to say. Uh, I, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad to hear some optimism, some more optimism. Um, we've, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, we started out talking about the, the triumph of Jeffersonian democracy, uh, how that was a direct direct opposition to the money power of its time and resulted in a victory in being able to throw out the forerunner of the Fed, which is what Occupy Wall Street is really talking about doing here. Um, it sounds like we've we've got a blueprint to move forward here, and and I'm, it's really been great talking to you. Uh, any last thoughts? We've got about a minute left. Well, I I mean I appreciate you having me on your show. Um, I think, like I said, I think one of the best ways for us to keep moving forward in this you know positive light is to keep just keep in communication with each other, and that's why you know our our news outlet. We'd love to publish stuff to our audience about what you're doing. And, um, you know, just like I appreciate you having me on your show to, to talk about what we're doing and, and just goes back to I guess, the last point I'd make is just reiterating that I mean, the best way to move forward is for ourselves to stay in communication and, and, and use each other's resources in this common pursuit. And, and it also helps if you don't have the mute button on when you're trying to keep that dead air down. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Commercial broadcast history brought to you by Occupy Interview. Uh, we are out of time. Chad, thanks for standing. Thank um, you. Take care, and we'll uh, talk to everybody later. Bye-bye. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Bye.